Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realize. My parents, my family were scared for me. They felt like the only thing that I could possibly turn into in LA was a prostitute. So I already felt like I had to be resilient towards the thoughts that people had towards me and accomplishing my dreams and proving them wrong to an extent. Alcohol is not a lovely thing, is it? Mm. <laughs> and uh, I think that's kind of what broke my dad and I's relationship was that when he would get incredibly wasted, he would always open up these conversations. He always likes to push buttons. Mm. And it was the racial conversation he knew would always push my button the most because I believe in equality. Mm. And so as he would push his views upon me, I would get... On this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well, I speak to Grammy-nominated artist Kimberly Wyatt. You might have recognised Kimberly from more recent times on TV, starring on Dancing on Ice. But she has sold more than 15 million albums and 40 million singles worldwide, reaching the top of success with one of the biggest selling girl groups of all time, the Pussycat Dolls. She really does know one or two things about resilience. Because resilience is the ability to withstand adversity and bounce back from difficult life events. Being resilient doesn't mean that people don't need to experience stress. It's how you handle that stress. And from speaking to Kimberly today, she really does know one or two things about being resilient. Kimberly has suffered with cystic acne. She has always struggled to be able to have to look and perform a certain way while being at the height of success. And then constantly reinventing herself throughout the years, also whilst trying to be a mother. I was honored to be able to speak to Kimberly in her home today. It's a really inspiring and woman-centered conversation today. And what I really love about this conversation is how much it's about women supporting women. Because I see, sadly, today in our society, that can be quite a rare occasion. So this is a very empowering conversation with a very empowering and inspiring woman. Kimberly. Yes. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me in we your house. We meet again. We meet again in your house. <laughs> yes, yes. First of all, thank you for having us here. Absolutely. Beautiful. I love looking at the moment in this series of just going to everyone's houses and seeing how different everyone's house is. Have a little peek. I love it. It's gorgeous. Around, little nosy. Absolutely. Yeah. So how are you, first of all? Because you've just come off Dancing on Ice, which yes. I know was intense. It was brutal, let me tell you. I, I, it was one hell of a challenge. And having had my three kids, like I went into it with a lot of diastases because my mm. abs were so separated after Senna and just wasn't recovering. But I'll tell you, From it brought my cesarean. My, yeah, my third cesarean. But um, ice skating brought those muscles back together and it really helped me get fighting fit. But on the other end of that, you know, you're dealing with blades and falls and bruises and bashes and tiredness like no other it was brutal and i'm just kind of almost fully recovered did you enjoy it i loved it did you i, loved it. I didn't want it to end i was exhausted but i loved it because <laughs> i'm sure like many people would have watched that and thought she's a professional dancer you know she'll be fine but it was actually intense training wasn't it it was unbelievably intense how many times a day were you or how many times a week and hours a day were you training for every day every day like there was no days off Seven days a week? Yes. 
seven days a week. <laughs> and then when I was finished training, then I would watch, I would always make sure I would get a video so I could just obsessively study the video um, sort of each night, just so I would know the moves inside and out to try and get enough confidence to go out there and do it confidently on ice. And do you think there's a part of perfectionism there within you as a person that Definitely. you want to make sure that it's perfect? Yeah. Yeah, if anything, it was great because it kind of took me back to my teenage years because I've always been a very focused dancer and mm. ballet has always been the foundation of all dance for me, all, something that was very important. I used to get scholarships to train at the Joffrey in New York and different studios and things. And it was lovely because every time I get on the ice, it was like we'd always start with bar work and I'd always have to do some plies in my boots and, and in my, uh, my skates and learn these certain lines, there was one through four that you had to get perfectly. And so every day I would start at the bar, just like I would as a teenager at the ballet bar. And at the end of every session, you always bow to whoever is the choreographer. So it was always taking me back to, to my ballet years, which I just, I loved. It was so nice to be a student again and just get sort of, sort of engulfed in learning ice skating. Cause it was my, it was like, my favorite thing as a kid. I well, used to watch Yes, never did it, but I loved watching the figure skaters at the Olympics. Yeah, I yeah, was yeah. so inspired by the Nancy Kerrigans and Oksana Bayul and these skaters from way back when, watching them at the Olympics. So yeah. to have a dream that I never thought I would ever get to be able to do the things that I was able to on the ice, um, to kind of bring that to fruition and skate into my 40s, three kids later, I was like, winning. I mean, you should be incredibly proud of yourself. Yeah, I'm really And also happy. to have that resilience, and that's something I really want to talk today, because I know that you face a lot of adversity through dancing on ice, and maybe that's something we can come to through the interview, because let's start back at the very beginning, because you just referenced your childhood there. So tell me about what it was like. Was it Massachusetts that you grew up Missouri. in? Missouri. Missouri, okay. Yeah. So tell me about growing up as a kid there. What was it like? Missouri's like, it's a little farm country, really. My dad was a truck driver, delivered like oil and stuff to, to farmers and police stations and things. And um, it was very rural, very country. We used to ride ATVs and go horseback riding, play in the rivers and like, it was sort of idyllic uh, country life in Missouri. And, you know, I was quite a shy, introverted girl. Found it very hard to be confident in social settings, especially at school and things. And I think it was when I found dance that I really sort of started to find a place that I could be really pleased with the things I could accomplish, whether it was choreography or turns or jumps or leaps or whatever it was. It was like, oh, this makes my, my heart sing. And so dance really was like my ticket to, to find the, the world that I wanted. But no, it was like, yeah, Missouri's very country, very mm. idyllic. Ozarks, went to the Ozarks every weekend in the summer. Oh God, amazing. Yeah. And how was it with your parents? Were they really supportive of your dance? And what was that kind of whole relationship like? Well, my grandmother, Grandma Jane, was the my big cheerleader. And my mom was always there to support all the hours of dance because it mm. was most days of the week and competitions and raising money, doing a lot of like um, car washes or going door to door in my Miss Dance of America, Chapter 28, crown and sash asking for donations so I could get to nationals. We would bake cookies at sort of Christmas time and I would sell them to teachers and at school and to businesses, always trying to raise money to support this love of dance. And so what was the next stage in that then? So you started, you got through to the nationals. I mean, it's such a different it's such a different childhood to how it is in England. It is, Because you yeah. don't have this makeup there. Um, so then tell me about the next stages to really when you start taking it, you know, really seriously and it became to that next. 
What was brilliant with the competitions we had in the States, because you would do your competition, the next day was convention, and you would take classes from the judges that were usually from New York or mm -hmm. LA for that whole day, and you'd kind of get engulfed in different styles and be introduced to different ways of, of dancing. And you could also win scholarships, which I did, luckily, and was able to then travel to New York in the summers to train at the Joffrey and Broadway Dance Center and Steps on Broadway. And it was through that that you go to see a Broadway show and you meet these people in New York where you know, there's a lot of opportunity for dance. There's stages that, that celebrate that and there's West, uh, well, Broadway shows, West End mm. shows here. So it was just like kind of eye-opening in what you could do as a dancer and what you could accomplish and the fact that you can move and find opportunity. Mm. Yeah. So how did the dolls come about? So I want to know where this transition came. Yes. So from scholarships in New York, I knew I wanted to dance. I mm -hmm. loved it. I'd fallen in love. I had a lot of support with a lot of the teachers that really believed in me. I was trying to figure out how I was going to get started. I graduated school early. I went to zero hours. So I'd go to school at like 5.30 in the morning to get extra credits so I could graduate a bit early. And then I flew to Vegas for auditions and ended up getting a gig on uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines. So I started with cruises, singing and dancing on cruise ships, did that for about a year and a half. And I just, I was really seasick. <laughs> I wasn't very good on the ships. Um, I was really ill. I learned a lot. The choreographers were fantastic. A lot of them out of Chicago, River North and Hubbard Street, really great jazz companies. And again, I had a, a lot of believers that mm. believed in my talent. And so I felt like, what would be my biggest dream? Well, I loved watching the music videos as a kid, mm -hmm. as a teen. The Missy Elliott, Busta Rhymes, Aaliyah, like all these videos had these amazing dancers. Mm -hmm. And I used to always tell my friends, what is that video missing? One white girl, this one. <laughs> <laughs> and where do you get that sort of opportunity? That's in LA, which I'd never been to before. Because you were from quite a working class Absolutely, right? Absolutely. So you didn't have a lot of money to support this transition. None. Yeah, which hence the uh, the car washes and the charitable door-to-door mm. <laughs> -door knocks. Mm. Um, but in my mind, I was like, I, if I just get myself there, kind of go to an audition I'd found online, and let's just see what happens, see if mm -hmm. I've got what it takes. So packed my bags, drove myself to LA, mom came with me, it's like 36 hour drive in total, um, to this little GPS point on my laptop that I'd hooked up to go to Debbie Reynolds' dance studio to uh, audition for, I think it was like a Toyota Industrial or something. Um, but I went there and there was over 200 girls. It was the non-agency call. And I got myself right in the front line because I don't pick up choreography very quickly. I need to mm. like really focus and get it in. Once I've got it, I can smash it. But mm. kind of getting it in the body, I, it, I've always struggled with. So I would get myself right in the front line so I could see and make it happen. And I got it down to, I think there was three girls kept from that call mm. and invited back to the next day, which was the agency call. So I'd come back the next day, another 200 girls from all the agents uh, came to show up. And so again, I got myself in that front line. You know, I wanted to prove to myself that I could make it in LA. This was mm. a dream. Mm. So I'm in the front line. The room is filling up with so many other girls. All of them look like fashionistas. I came from New York, like East Coast scholarship. So I'm sitting there in a leotard of tights and <laughs> hair scraped back into a bun, like, you know, Trina. But they were like fashionistas. Like they had their ripped clothes. It was like early thousand, 2000. So it was like ripped clothes and belly tops and like mohawks and dreads and crazy hair. Like in the dance world, it was everything to sort of stand out. Mm. So I get my little spot in that front line, got there like an hour early so I could get it. 
And just as the choreographer is showing up, this, these two girls, I could hear them from behind, sort of are shoving through the whole crowd. They'd come quite late. Shove past me, stand in front of me, and I couldn't believe it. I would just let out like a, ah! Oh! And they turned around and they said, welcome to Hollywood. <laughs> So I was like, oh God. But ended up like, I, I got to the end of the audition. I didn't get the job, but I think they took six girls. I was number seven or eight. And for me, that was good enough. I was yeah, like, yeah. I can do this. Mm. So then it really was like a bag and a dream and having to figure out where I was going to live and how I was going to make it happen and get other jobs to support the career and being able to show up to auditions and take class and learn different styles and find my way. Um, into the industry and luckily it did work out for me as member doing I think one of my first big gigs was the opening ceremonies for um, the Paralympics in Salt Lake City and then I started getting gigs for different movies films like The Rundown and 13 Going on 30 and Starsky and Hutch was able to do then got a job uh, most amazing choreographer Marguerite Derricks she does uh, amazing work and um, she had a series called Cedric the Entertainer Presents, and there was the sensations. There were six girls, um, and we would dance to top and tail the show and before every commercial break on Fox TV in the mm -hmm. States. It felt like a big step forward. And during that time, um, I sort of got to know this underground thing that was called the Pussycat Dolls. It was incredibly revered as this, this cool thing that Justin Timberlake would go to and watch and different people like Cameron Diaz and Charlize Theron and Christina Aguilera would be a part of it. And it was dancing and singing and performing and fishnets and garters and like all sorts of corsets and things. It looked really cool, but I still mm. had no idea what it was. And then I ended up in an audition. It was for Nick Lachey and Jessica Simpson. Um, it was back when they had Gosh, the newlyweds on MTV. Yes. Yes. So in the episode where Nick Lachey is auditioning dancers, there I am. <laughs> and so after the audition, it just so happened that the owner of Pussycat Dolls, Robin Anton, and the choreographer, Mikey Minden, were the ones working that job, hiring those dancers. So they saw me, they saw my flexibility, they saw you know, what I was able to do, and they called me that night and said, okay, we know that Nick Lachey and Larry Rudolph really want you to be part of his sort of solo project, but have you heard of the Pussycat Dolls and would you be interested in joining? And I was like, well, I've heard of them, but I don't really know what they do. But I was like, sure, like, <laughs> looking for work, I'll take it. And yeah, so I sort of started kind of blindly and just started showing up to rehearsals and meeting all the Pussycat Dolls. There's probably like 15 of them at, at this point with all the different celebrity guests and things. And yeah, so I started my journey into it. And about a year and a half later, after doing quite a few shows here, there and everywhere, Jimmy Iovine from Interscope saw the group and really believed in be making it become a recording group. So then, you know, a year and a half into my Pussycat Dolls journey of fishnets and stilettos, I was like, okay, we're gonna flip this thing into to something, sort of allow the brand to evolve mm. into a recording group. And so taking a step back, like just before you get to the Pussycat Dolls, I have like known just from conversations with you and, and things you spoke about in the press, it wasn't easy though. There was a lot of resilience and a lot of times when you thought you might not make it and you were trying to do so many different jobs. Like talk to me about that period of how did you keep that resilience? 
Matt, to well, keep going because it's not as you know it sounds like you worked really hard but I know that it, there was really hard times for you in those moments yeah yeah there definitely was but I feel like from the moment I left home like my parents my family were scared for me they felt like the only thing that I could possibly turn into in LA was a prostitute so I already felt like I had to be resilient towards the thoughts that people had towards me and accomplishing my dreams mm. and proving them wrong to an extent mm. And uh, being resilient enough to know that working on cruise ships, I was really sad. I overate. I was I would put on weight calls. I had to get weighed in every week to make sure that I wasn't getting too big to be popping out of costumes. So when I arrived, like and and like I said, I was a bunhead. I was more of a technically trained dancer, mm. and everything in LA was way more of a, of a street sort of vibe. So I had to take class and learn how to be resilient enough to find a look, find a weight, find a style, find a dance style as well that would get me noticed enough to start mm. working. Mm. And luckily I was able to be resilient enough to, you know, finding a, a sort of a, a, a way to stay, not trim, but like to stay fit, to stay fit, to have a look, to find a way that made me stand out. Mm. And I, I luckily was able to start working with the likes of Brian Friedman and incredible choreographers like Marguerite Derricks that helped build those building blocks. But it certainly didn't come easy for me. Mm. Like when it came to, to bookings, if the all American like look that was very commercial for that time, I just wasn't. I looked too exotic. They didn't know where to place me. So um, those wouldn't really be the jobs that I would get. So coming into the Pussycat Dolls, I had learned so much about res being resilient within the industry anyway. But now there's this whole new journey of figuring out how to prove yourself enough to stay in this group. Because there was 12 girls when we signed to the record label. And they were making cuts left, right, and center, trying to figure out what the group was going to be. And so luckily I had proved myself to a point. We get to Doncha, you know, this massive hit worldwide. But Robin wasn't so sure that I sort of still deserved my, my role. I had really bad acne. So the thing... Yeah, talk to me about this. Oh, what did you call it to me earlier? Yeah, cystic acne. Cystic acne, that was it. Talk to so me about... So that's not just bumps. That's like huge welts on your face. Like mm. it's horrific. I actually Googled that after yeah. you told me and I was, I was shocked. So it was so bad that I knew when somebody would look at me that they couldn't see my face because most people couldn't see past, just the really bad marks all over my face. And um, yeah, that made had Robin sort of talking to me about you've got to get this under control because they won't take you into the group if, if you know you carry on looking the way that you do. So I'd be obsessively getting like microdermabrasions and chemical peels and trying to figure out how in the world I was going to get rid of this because this is like my dream to be... Mm you know, a pussycat doll and tour worldwide and be in this music video, like I wanted it so bad. But I remember going to the MTV Asia Awards, there was still 12 of us in the group and even a makeup brush touching my skin was like, it would make me wince because it hurt so bad. Yeah, it must be really painful. Really painful. But did you always have this acne or was it at a certain point that it developed and got, and got worse? Yeah, just in my 20s, it came. Like I had lovely skin as a teenager. Those are the years you're supposed to get it out of the way. Mm. But there I was, you know, facing what I felt like was my destiny, having to deal with this and having the pressure of a record label and the owner of the Pussycat Dolls brand all coming at me like, you need to sort this. So I remember even being on Accutane and the dose we were taking was like unbelievable because the doctor was even getting calls from the business dealings of the dolls saying, can we sort this? So, I mean, the, the dosage was really high. I have to take blood tests, making sure my organs weren't failing, all to like get rid of this cystic acne. 
And to the point that, um, you know, we did the Don't You video, there's another girl in the video, uh, Cloda, brilliant dancer, great performer. Um, and so her and I were kind of being looked at as whether we were going to be in or out or one of us was going to be in. So most of the group shots in the Don't You video for Pussycat Dolls, I'm not in. <laughs> and if I am, I'm right way back in the back. Because uh, they wanted to make me sort of disposable at that point. They just weren't so sure. But that, you talk about resilience. So I, I mean, that in, is resilience. I went into, Orbe was doing hair at the time. Rest in peace. He was an unbelievable creative. And he gave me this mohawk. And they're like, I remember. Oh, oh, I remember. It's actually in your bathroom. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And Andrea Lieberman. Was it Lieberman? Um, same stylist as Gwen Stefani. Came with the most like cool ideas of how they were going to rebrand the Pussycat Dolls and I was going to become Punk Doll. She was like, you've got such a sweet face, we're going to edge you out and like really give you a thing. I love that. I love playing characters. Like that's what makes my heart sing. Again, like being a performer, I love to like create. And so I come walking out of this, um, of the trailer with this mohawk and this like Punk Doll look and I was feeling myself. And I was like, I just felt like this was a moment to really prove why I needed to be in that group. Like, this group needs me. And so every single scene, I would dance my heart out. I would, I remember going on my stomach, there's still the shot in it, of this banister. It was a 40-foot banister. I'm on my stomach sliding down the banister with my mohawk and jumping down and getting straight into choreography. I remember doing this trampoline bit and jumping up and trying to splay out so that the camera could get the most amazing shot before it landed and hitting my head on the on the, uh, on the the wood bit as I came down. I was just out for blood. Mm. I was out, I was so hungry to prove myself and be resilient enough to show that this group needed me. In the end, they're like, nope, we need Punk Doll in the Pussycat Dolls. Mm. And Cloda didn't move forward. Robin had been in the group before that, the, the owner of the brand, and she didn't move forward as a member, but I was able to stick to it enough mm. to sort of lock in my place. Mm. It's so interesting hearing about this kind of brand ownership because I think when you're watching any, any brand um, or any girl group or boy group, there's a certain kind of finesse where you think, oh yeah, you know, they kind of have the control and they have the power, but you had to fight blood, sweat and tears for your place. And in a way, you know, when you're a model, it's dog eat dog. Yeah. So, you know, as your husband will know, who is a model, mm -hmm. you know, we go to a castings and it's dog eat dog. And so we're all there comparing ourselves. And when I look at a group, I kind of think, oh, they're all in it together. They've got one another. It kind of sounds like it's dog eat dog. It was, man. Like complete <laughs> dog eat dog. There's no kind of like rapport or girl power there. It's like, well, I need to make this group. So screw you. I'm getting in. And yeah. That's, that's hard. Yeah, it was in the beginning. And I think that especially then the way that the group was set up, you know, Nicole was sort of the front person and then there was the rest of us. How did that come about? Why was Nicole the... You know, she laid the she laid down the vocals on Doncha. They felt like she had a lot of experience. She did. She had a lot of experience as a mm -hmm. performer, uh, great great voice, a great lead person. And I think ultimately, you know, it was the first 360 deal that had ever been done in the music industry. So it was a, a real joint venture between the label and the Pussycat Dolls, the owner, Robin Anton. They wanted to find a way to, to own a brand and make money from it as much as they possibly could and find different outlets. And I think it came down to, well, it's easier for us to push this, this focal person so that 
when it when it comes down to it, if we don't want you anymore, if we don't like you anymore, if we want to switch it up, if if you want more money, if you want more exposure, then you 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 get back. Well, we'll just replace you. And I think that sort of power choice really made it difficult for most of us girls、mm. as pussycat dolls. But then on the flip side, it also brought a lot of us together because we all we had was each other,、mm. and we wanted to live the dream. And we were sold that you know this is a stepping stone to other things you might do, like. So we, we, the way that it was set out was like, well, don't lay your hat on this because this is a brand thing and a and a business sort of opportunity that we are pushing. And if you want to find your place in there, you got to show up and prove it every single day.、Mm. So that's what I did was just prove it、mm. every single day.、Mm. Every single time I took to the stage, it was like I was out for blood again because、mm. it was like you need to see why I deserve to be here.、Mm. So I would give all of the energy. I'd give all of the hours. I would stay after to help some of the other girls with a lot of the dance steps. I sort of became almost like a dance captain to to prove my role. Got involved with costumes and making costumes and helping with the Pussycat Dolls Lounge in Vegas and hiring and making sure it was all decked out and became a assistant of sorts to Robin, the the brand owner, and to Mikey, the choreographer at that time, and just did everything I had to to be resilient enough to、mm. hold that spot.、Mm. <laughs> did you not feel there was a massive sense of unfairness in that that you're working、yeah. extra hard and getting less recognition? Oh, definitely, definitely, and I think that. You can only sustain that for so long,、mm. and it got to the point where it just was like diminishing me, because it's your own journey. It was diminishing most of us, but for me, it was at a point where I just could not speak up about it anymore. Because、mm. um, it was like I remember there was a time where you know I my stomach just couldn't handle the stress of it, and the constantly being told you're replaceable and like. You know, you're constantly trying to build yourself up and and find your self worth and and remember what it is that you're there to drive and there to sell. And you know, for me, it was a real. For me, the Pussycat Dolls stood for empowerment and owning your space and making it okay to to dress up in whatever you want to, be whatever you want to, perform however you want to. It was a real message and an anthem for women of all ages, for a, a lot of the the gay boys. Like they all would call like. We were able to be a leader for so many people around the world, and that is empowering.、Mm. But on the other side of that, trying to keep that spot was like, yeah, it was you intense. You weren't leading yourself. No, no, you weren't empowering yourself. No, you were being. I mean, was there one point that I remember they made you? Well, they said to you, "Got to look like an anorexic alien." Yes, because they did say we need to look like anorexic aliens. <laughs> Can you just like talk me through this moment from someone who obviously works as a nutritionist and has been in the modelling industry? Yeah, that term is the first I've ever heard. <laughs> Bless him, Ron Fair. He's a genius in his own right when it comes to music. Maybe not doesn't have the best people skills, shall、mm. we put it? And I guess ultimately they wanted this brand to work, and they needed to go to whatever extent to make it work. And having just worked with Christina Aguilera, and he was sort of renowned for being able to make artists do what they don't want to do. So, like Christina Aguilera and Genie in a Bottle, she did not want to do that track.、Mm. But they're like, but as a label, this track is going to get you out there and sell like crazy. Just do this track, and then you can get to your stuff, you know, as and when. So he was sort of hired to come with the Pussycat Dolls to make us do stuff that we didn't really want to do, but maybe made sense for building a huge brand and making a huge splash. So the look of the Pussycat Dolls is incredibly important. It's a big part of what drove the brand, and、uh, he wanted to get it right. So he felt that 
at that point, it was the Britney Spears and the Christina Aguilera and Pink and showing a lot of skin was like the way that you make it happen. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want anybody to look one ounce out of shape. They didn't want to take any risks. So yeah, they came in, had a big meeting, and he said, we want you to look like anorexic aliens. Like watch what you eat, get into the gym, take care of yourself. Um, and what effect did that happen to you? What well, already, maybe, for me, I know it was hard for a lot of the other girls. For me, my struggle had already been years in the making. Mm -hmm. And I was still trying to prove myself. So the thing that I would tell myself every day, I would get up and go to Dove's Bodies at the time. It was this like workout place. And I was like, I will do everything in my power to make sure they see I will go to the upteenth degree to continue to be a pussycat doll. Life is better with exercise. I can definitely verify that comment. You feel better, your endorphins increase, and it helps to manage stress and anxiety. I really do believe that exercise is one of the key pillars of our health. Since working from home more, I have really got into my home workouts and spin was one of the things that I missed terribly. So today I'm really happy to share our sponsors are Apex Rides, the British smart bike built to give you that studio experience in your own home. It's called a smart bike because the bike itself connects to an app on your phone or tablet so you can see your live workout stats while doing one of Apex's live or on-demand classes. Being connected also means you can ride with others across the country in real time. And although Apex's live leaderboard feature, any workout is gamified as you set out to collect as many Apex points as possible during the workout. On the app, there are loads of different workout options whether it's their metric bike classes, which are more stats focused, or their move rides, which are described as a party on the bike. There are also Pilates classes, floor-based strength series, and a mobility program focused all on stretching. These are all led by one of Apex's 12 instructors who have been hand-picked due to their easygoing nature, expert credentials, and their unique ability to make exercise fun. Something that runs through every Apex workout. So if you're looking for an exceptional workout that isn't going to cost a fortune, check out Apex Rides. The bike is now only 599 pounds. So head to www.apexrides.com to find out more. So I didn't like stop eating. I didn't take it as like, okay, now I have to be anorexic. I was mm -hmm. like, no, I just have to be in shape. I have to present myself. I have to do what I came here to do. Like, what's my superpower? Being a badass dancer. That's mm -hmm. what I brought to that group. I knew my lane and I was gonna kill it every single time I had mm -hmm. an opportunity to. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And I stayed true to that. But did that kind of become obsessive in your thoughts where you were like, I've got to get up and do this every single morning. Or I've got to really watch what I eat. Did it kind of overtake that headspace? Yeah, definitely. Tuna and grapefruit, I think I lived on for quite some time. <laughs> and that's it? Pretty much, yeah. I had to get rid of all the carbs. Like I tried so many different like diets and stuff. I knew that wasn't a thing that worked for me. Um, so I just needed to find the but foods that, that I could like trust. that does sound like a diet. My like yeah. looking at it, that is a, that is a restrictive sure. diet, a right? Yeah. yeah. Which it, that didn't last forever. I think once 
as a for my role in the group, the amount of calories I was burning as a dancer was mm. pretty epic. Mm. <laughs> so I just I kind of need to to look after myself. But yeah, food. I think I had already had my problems with diets and food and stuff. So for me, that didn't affect my choices in a negative way. Mm. I tried to just flip it in a positive way of like, mm. let me just do what I need to do to stay healthy and to show you know, what a badass performer I am. Mm. But there must be times within you where you're fighting terrific acne that you're, that yes. you're suffering with. You're on really high doses of Rectane, as you said. Yeah. You're having to eat tuna and grapefruit and yeah. get up and actually hammer dance every day and the gym yeah. and then be in a doggy dog world. I mean, yeah. I mean I'm, not, a lot. I'm not a genius here, but yeah. something's got to break. Yeah. What so broke? Me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we sacrificed everything. It was a massive hit. We followed up with Buttons, another massive global hit. So we had then sort of given up our lives for the Pussycat Dolls to travel, to do all the promo, to do the tours. We toured with the Black Eyed Peas for a year and a half. Then we headlined our own tour after, off a first album, which doesn't happen very often, having Gaga. No, it was Rihanna and Neo opened for us on our first big tour. The next one, it was Gaga opening for us. So you know, as much as you're dealing with these inner battles, you're also living the dream. Mm. And you know that there is a gazillion girls behind you that will take that spot and deal with everything you're dealing with mm. in, a, in, a, in a moment, in a blink of an eye. Mm. So at the same time, that dog-eat-dog -dog world is just fueling you to like, no, I gotta, I gotta make this mm. happen. But like you said, that you can't hold on to that forever. Mm. Yeah, so I broke. I got IBS and I just knew that my stomach was not okay. I didn't know what it was called at that point, but I had a moment where I'd run off stage, didn't feel okay, I was in the toilet and it wasn't coming out cause I just didn't know what was going on. And a whole ambulance came and they broke down the door and like had three people t looking me over. They sent everybody out and laid me down on the ground and were checking through my body and asking me questions about my amount of stress and anxiety I had and what I was dealing with and the circumstances. So they sent me off tour back to the States to go to the hospital and get a colonoscopy and get loads of different checks. And uh, the girls continued the tour without me. And um, yeah, I had to go figure it out. And when I woke up from the colonoscopy and they said, yeah, we didn't really find a whole lot. So we think you probably have IBS and you're gonna have to get your stress and anxiety under control. That was a huge turning point. And to be sitting there trying to recover, seeing like, I think it was Arena in Manchester singing me happy birthday at a show that I couldn't show up to because my body just couldn't <laughs> deal with it anymore. But it made me feel very sad and very vulnerable and really replaceable. So I was like, yeah, they're right. They, they can continue without you, you know? There was an example. So then I started having to look at life a little bit differently. Mm. I started figuring out like, what, what, is, what is the purpose of all of this? Why am I sustaining this amount of stress and anxiety? And mm. you know, what would li life look like without it? Mm. What, what would I be doing? And so I started um, really diving into wellness, if I'm honest. I remember going to a spiritual, uh, what was she called? Uh, uh, a gui guided meditation. Mm. So it's a, a spiritual kind of guru. She would do guided meditation. And she introduced essential oils. And journaling was always something I did since I was like 17, so I was always writing. But essential oils, meditation, breathing, being more mind, just being more mindful of the things that you're eating, drinking, taking in, conversations you're having. Like, mm. you know, because we were over it. So there's times where you're just narrowing about how much you're over it. You don't realize you're getting stuck in this 
frame of mind and that mm. creates like an energy within you that mm -hmm. is gonna make you break at some point. So I had to let this go. I had to like, let it go. I can't, it just, it's just not worth it anymore because mm. I don't have a choice. Your health is your wealth. And when your health is yep. taken away from you and it feels so out of your hands, you've got to get it under control. Mm. And th that's what this situation taught me. So we sort of, I think Nicole went to do her solo bits for a bit. So I had about a year off because we were sort of shelved waiting for Nicole to do her thing. And I used that year to just cleanse my mind, body and soul, start going to the the, the farmer's market and get the best foods and best fruits. And all of a sudden my face is clearing up. My mind is starting to settle. I'm starting to enjoy just an everyday life. I don't need the like, the the grind to, to make me feel like I'm worth something. Um, I started feeling a bit better about myself and then went into the next round of it with that sort of mind frame. Mm. Still proven points, still, you know, hungry, still mm. out for blood, if you mm -hmm. will which led to doing when I grow up, you know, I did the big, um, grab my leg over my head and pulled it over the leg mm, tilt, which mm. has become like Michael Jackson's got the moonwalk. I have the leg tilt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's mm -hmm. what I'm known for. I love it. <laughs> um, and it was that hunger and resilience. that was like, no, I need to show the world that I am of value as a performer. Mm. And I remember doing that leg tilt and, you know, out for blood and, I felt good about myself and I felt good about how I was handling it. But again, you then entered into world tours and the whirlwinds of stresses and anxieties and being told that, you know, you're not really, you are replaceable and you start to feel like I don't even have control over it. Even though I'm, you know, can control myself, I can't control my surroundings to stay mm. in a calm, lovely space. Mm. So I started having conversations with people, with, whether it was in the group or with management or the brand owner. And it finally escalated to having a meeting at the label with all the label heads and they brought all their lawyers and we had all the girls there and the, the owner of the brand. And you know, I was just like, listen, everybody's breaking. Like the stress and anxiety that we have because of the way that the business operations of the Pussycat Dolls are going is not feeling fair. It's not feeling good. And I can't figure out how to like make it better. So let me tell you how to make it better because we need help here if we're going to keep this thing going. And again, Ron Fair, love you, Ron. <laughs> he said, let me stop you there. You don't, don't need to waste your breath. You all just need therapy. <laughs> I was like, this is the response I'm getting to like, you know, it took a lot of courage to bring this all together and just have a sit down with lawyers and all the label and everybody of importance of the business goings to be like, my, our mental well-being is not okay. Mm. And we could fix this if you want to. Mm. And I was basically told no. So that's when I was like, okay, okay. All right, well, we got to find our way out of this. And uh, my own, my name was owned at that point. So I couldn't like start a website to do my writings or something because I loved to write. I couldn't do it under my own name. The label would say no. So I was like, okay, how do I get around this? I still need to like, tell the world who I am because I just felt like I needed to. So I started a website called Beautiful Movements and I would do vlogs and poetry and artwork and just share all my little creations and started creating this little community of people where I was just able to kind of just 
be okay with being me, being flawed, being broken, dealing with acne, writing about all of this stuff. And in return, I'd have people all around the world flooding me with their own stories of whether it was they, they were a lesbian, they didn't know how to come, up to the, come out to their parents, or they dealt with acne, or they were dealing with eating disorders. Like, it was all coming at me. And just being realist, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And that, like, mental, having, being mindful of your mental well-being and your having emotional awareness is so important. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I think that's, well, I know that really is what drives me a lot within the choices that I make, whether mm-hmm. it's being an ambassador for the Youth Sport Trust and bringing dance into schools. Having, you know, they've introduced me to people like Baroness Susan Greenfield, who's a neuroscientist, and her mother was actually a dancer. And so I would sit down and just talk to her about, you know, the implications of of wellness and how much I feel like it's so important for kids and how I feel like dance is a real tool that can help unlock that through the Youth Sport Trust. And her learned that between the ages of six to eight, you decide how you feel about your body and that lasts for the rest of your life. And that just made me feel like, well, we need to get in there and start helping kids create a positive self-awareness and and create even a relationship with their emotions because it just wasn't even talked about. Have you seen that TED Talk, Why Do do Schools Kill Creativity? Yes. And it's basically everything you're saying. Yeah. And I say to anyone listening to this or watching this, like, you have to go and watch that TED Talk because it's about how they teach kids from the neck up as opposed to the full body. And I think, I can't remember exactly, because when I did my TED talk, that's really what inspired me by watching this video. And he was a professor, and I think there was a, a woman who took his kid, their kid to go and see him. And in the end, they were like, there's nothing wrong with your child, because they weren't learning at the pace they were meant to be. And she actually became one of the biggest ballet dancers yes. in the world. Was she like dancing in the other room or something? And the yeah. doctor took the mum around and was like, look, she's just a dancer. Exactly. Like, I really connect with that. Yeah, but that's why every time you're talking to this, it's kind of what I'm getting in my mind. And it's kind of that pushback from, you know, as you said, your parents who, your mum sounded supportive. I'm not sure how it was with your dad, but I do also remember, and I hope, you know, I know you've talked about this, but when the whole George Floyd thing came up, you spoke quite openly about breaking that relationship with your parents. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Because you felt it was a very racist household that you grew up in. And, you know, was your dad always judging this creativity within you and maybe this kind of dream that you had and where they did you, would you would you would you explain them as more narrow-minded in that sense and that they didn't yeah. foresee it yeah they were I mean they grew up in their little town and they never really left and at this point I have a better understanding of how they grew up and how they arrived to that point but what I realized at a really young age is that I've always felt that equality is so incredibly important mm-hmm. I think that's what's driven me through dance is Dance delivers a lot of different styles and you learn a lot about different cultures through different styles. Going to LA and immersing myself in street dance, that comes from African-American culture. Tap Mm -hmm. dance comes from African-American culture. So I feel so connected uh, because of my training within these things and these worlds and going to train at these uh, dance studios in LA and I'm just immersed in this world of all different types of, of people and I've always connected with all different types of people even when I was a kid but as a kid if I was hanging out with my beautifully colorful group of people if I saw a cop car I would have to hide because that cop would then go and tell my dad that I was hanging out with somebody of color and I would be in big big trouble 
big, huge trouble. Like what kind of trouble? Well, I mean, alcohol's not a lovely thing, is it? <laughs> mm. And uh, I think that's kind of what broke my dad and I's relationship was that when he would get incredibly wasted, uh, we he would always open up these conversations. He always liked to push buttons. Mm. And it was the racial conversation. He knew would always push my button the most because I believe in equality. Mm. And so as he would push his views upon me, I would get worked up and in trying to convince him that he was wrong to the point that, you know, I stuck my chin out and he brought his fist back and almost got clocked across the face and I'd been shoved up against the wall at one point. But it was all because I just couldn't back down from my true beliefs of mm. it's not okay to to act and do the things that you're doing because you feel so, it comes from being scared of differences really. Mm. Because of your fear of difference, I can't stand for that. And mm. I will literally take a hit across the face standing up for the things that I believe in. Mm. And I realized as much as I tried and, and wanted to change things in that small little town that I grew up in, I couldn't. Mm. And so dance was my ticket out. And, mm. you know, I still don't have a wonderful relationship with my parents. I have, I have an understanding of why my mom was the way that she was and is the way that she is. And I have a lot of love for both of them, but I think ultimately our views aren't ever going to match. Mm. And that's always gonna drive a wedge. And no matter how hard I try and be a good example of why I feel like equality is so not only okay, but important and fruitful and amazing. And I feel like the George Floyd incident created real change in mm. a lot of different um, aspects of life. We are still a long way to go. And the place that I grew up in, you know, I look back and sometimes I wonder if it is almost hopeless because uh, people are stuck in their ideology. And sometimes you have to just realize that you can't change that. Mm. So I'd, I'd rather now live here in a community that I love and in a family that accepts differences and celebrates that. And, mm. and, and, you know, again, through dance, I feel like fusing all the different styles together and making it okay to learn from different cultures and experience other cultures and talk to other people and I feel like dance is a real tool that can be used to bring people together right rather than driving them apart. Mm. You speak so much in there and you're about equality and then I'm trying to reference it back to your time in the Pussycat Dolls. You know my mind's kind of getting 10 to a dozen right now about you know the, the quality of life but when you were in that Pussycat Dolls, there wasn't any for you. No. And no. so the irony around yeah. around that is, is quite extreme because you mentioned earlier, you know, Nicole had to go off and do her solo kind of part on her own and, and we waited for a year. Like, how did that make you feel? Was there not kind of any resentment there as why is she going off to do the solo? Did it create, what was the dynamic like in that group? You don't want to ever dampen anyone's dreams and the way that the operations of the Pussycat Dolls was so somewhat convoluted that you never kind of knew where she stood mm. when it came to Nick. Like, I think I often would say, Nick, the only thing I really wish from you is for you to really want to be here. Because mm. I know I love being here, but I never, I don't think any of us really felt that love and want back mm. um, quite often. So you want her to live her dream. I don't want to hold her back from whatever she wants to do. Um, but I also can't make her want to love being a pussycat doll either. Mm. Um, so it was difficult. I mean, when she went off to do her solo project, you like wish her well. And I remember going to her video, like supporting, you know, wanting her 
to do well, but you do feel somewhat discarded. Yeah, there was never, there was no, there never an intention to create a relationship that felt like a, a proper, I don't know, girl band. But we were never really built as a girl band. Really, it was a joint venture, joint business venture that we were cast members of. Mm. So, who do you hold that against? The the lead singer? I don't know. The 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 record label? I don't know. Like head of the dolls? I don't know. So you, you just spread that accountability across everything and just realize, well, you knew what you signed up for, so use it as that stepping stone, as they said it was supposed to be, and go and try and create a life that's going to feel maybe a little bit more fulfilling. Mm. But at the same time, I'm always going to be a pussycat doll. Like, <laughs> that is a huge part of who I am. But it just sounds so unhuman. Yeah. You know, the human concept of this, that just doesn't feel like there is any. Yeah. Yeah, well, but I would I like there to be. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I, I would never give up on it either. Like, yeah. I'll tell you, two and a half years of conversations and it really killed me because I would call Nicole every single day and I remember the press asking about it and I was like, I'd watch The Defiant Ones documentary mm. about Dre and Jimmy Iovine and mm. all this stuff. And I remember seeing Jimmy and he was always the best leader. I felt like I learned so much from Jimmy. He was a big believer in Pussycat Dolls. He's... The, the OG gangster in the music world. Um, and he talked about doing great business. And sometimes he's like, if you need to get something out of somebody, you need to just call them every single day until you get an answer. So I was like, all right, Jimmy, that's what I'll do. So I started calling Nick and leaving messages and just being like, you know, should we not like give this a chance to make everybody fulfilled in this in this band, like we, everybody's so talented, so beautiful. I love what the Pussycat Dolls stands for. We've got incredible music. Let's come back together and really make a movement. The Me Too thing has already happened. Like people need to see women owning their space and making that mm. okay. Mm. So I, I feel like it was important. So I started making those phone calls. And I remember the media came out about, oh, what did they call me? Whinging or? It's like a guy does it and he's like so such a brazen businessman. Mm. A girl does it and she's nagging. That's what I was. I was a nagger. Mm. It's like, what? I hate that word. I do too. Yeah. yeah. How about I'm a strong woman trying to make shit happen? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so two and a half years later, we did finally get contracts signed and we came back for a reunion performance. For me, after having a surprise baby and a cesarean only seven weeks earlier, talk about resilience. It was oh like, gosh. I'd fight, like, it took me so long to finally get to the point where everybody was on, somewhat on the same page and getting contracts signed and moving forward with music and a performance. So I think it was a week later after we signed the contracts, I found out that I was pregnant with a surprise baby. So then I was looking at, like, okay, that first performance is going to be in whatever month. So the baby would be born there. Okay, so I have seven weeks after this cesarean to get myself on stage and back into the Pussycat Dolls. And that's what I did. <laughs> and um, it's dangerous. It is a bit dangerous. <laughs> it is a bit dangerous. I don't recommend it. <laughs> I'm like, isn't there a certain period after having a baby, especially a cesarean, you're not allowed to exercise? Well, uh, yes, you're supposed to wait six weeks before you kind of do any exercise. But I did have a really brilliant doctor who was on board and knew what I was up to okay. and supportive and went in and gave my abs a bit of a stitch during the cesarean to try and bring them back together sooner. And was just there with me every step of the way before I stepped onto stage and got my leg back over the head just seven weeks after baby number three. I was really hopeful that we were gonna be able to come back together and create what I felt the group should have always had. 
an essence of empowered women working together, mm. supporting each other, uniting, and sharing this message of being sassy but classy, being able to go out there and just like throw down and making it okay. But then it didn't work out, did it? <laughs> we saw, we did all the promo in the UK and Australia. We sold out a lot of our shows for a tour in the UK. We had plans to go around the world. COVID then happens and we literally, all the girls from the States had flown over for our first day of rehearsal, which would have lasted for three weeks before we started a world, what would be a world tour. And the day they flew over was pretty much the first day of when they decided we were going into lockdown. So they had to fly right back. So then two years, I'm thinking, okay, we've got this tour coming. This is, this is keeping me going, keeping me feeling resilient within this life of trying to raise three young children and change loads of nappies and do homeschooling and everything that COVID mm. came with. Mm. And then, yeah, ended up on the other side of it, having the tour not come back and canceled and everybody's money given back and fans being pretty irate. I remember getting so many messages in my inbox about like, what is going on with the tour? Like, I can't believe you canceled. I was like, I don't know what they're even talking about. Like, I always felt like we were all the last to know. And what did happen? What did happen? Well, Robin and Nicole just couldn't come to an agreement really when it came to the contract that had been signed. I think Nicole wanted more and Robin just wanted to get the, the dates out there and they couldn't get on the same page. So Robin was in a bit of a tough spot, I would assume, because Live Nation wanted to reschedule the dates, um, but couldn't until she had Nicole on board and Robin sort of filed a lawsuit against Nicole. And we are still waiting to see what's going to happen. And you're in that now. And I am in that now. It's tiring, isn't it? It's so I'm really tired. I'm being resilient. <laughs> you don't have to always be resilient. You can break down. You can yeah, scream. I, I mean, I mean, I've had loads of those human. moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I did cry. I was devastated when I found out that the tickets were refunded. I was on the freaking ice rink on Dancing on Ice on the like the performance rink. Um, all the cameras filming and I'm trying to figure out, I think it was like first or second week of performance. I'm still dealing with a lot of nerves, feeling incredibly insecure because I wasn't good at ice skating. And then found out that it had been canceled and I did, I broke down. I couldn't help it. I was so upset. I just bawled my eyes out in front of everybody and everybody was freaking, what's wrong with her? Is she gonna leave the show? I'm like, that's nothing to do with any of you. Just please give me a second to just cry my eyes out because I worked so hard and had so much hope that we could come back together and make something to be proud of. Mm. For me though, it would just be anger. Yeah. So much anger. There, there has been anger. Between somebody wanting more than somebody else oh. and you're there the whole time. It's like, a, I feel like I'm in a divorce, so like sitting as a child, just looking at these two people fighting over, of course they both have <laughs> nice big percentages of the brand. I felt like we did a lot of negotiations and I definitely, sort of had to bite my tongue as I signed that page because for me it was more about the belief and what we were going to build together and this hope to really celebrate everybody in the group and then to see that sort of yeah taken away and see these two women fighting it just like it goes against everything we ever stood for as a band like it and was, it goes against women supporting women it goes against women supporting women and then I go straight into Dancing on Ice after this big cry and we're live on a Sunday and having this amazing experience on the ice. But the online presence of the people that were watching, a lot of people, now there was a lot of support out there, 
But what you could feel is the women supporting women thing, like Sally, De I can't even, never say her last name, but Sally from Corey, who was on the show, it's like a national treasure. And uh, the way that they pit her and Bez against each other, or bigging up Bez for all of his work on the ice and just going in on how she's not skating and she's not good enough and she doesn't deserve to be there. And for me, having purpose work is so important. Talk Being to me able, about that. Mm, no matter what I'm doing, I love my adventures as a performer. But if I can, whenever there's the time, I fill my schedule with teaching. I love getting into a classroom with loads of kids, with adults, whatever it might be, and bringing all the lessons I've learned to them. Not just for their dancing, but for like life skills. Mm. And feeling like I can be of purpose to others, I mm. think is what makes me always feel fulfilled. Mm. So what's the next five years gonna look like? Whew. Well, got little ones to raise. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I hope lots of amazing adventures as an actress and a performer, and who knows, maybe the Pussycat Tolls will end up on tour. Nobody knows. TVC. TVC, <laughs> but <laughs> I'll stay hopeful and optimistic. Um, My God, though, when I watch that performance, if it happens, I will now appreciate that journey <laughs> yeah. that you've been through. Yeah. That was like, you know, doing that comeback X Factor performance seven weeks after Caesarean felt the most insecure I've ever felt on stage. But in my mind, I was like, I am standing up for like women everywhere, for moms everywhere. Look at what our bodies could do. I'm gonna go out there and celebrate it. And then it was like 600 and some odd complaints come in because the dolls look too sexy on stage. I'm like, they missed the point. <laughs> you missed the point. You couldn't even see past the cleavage to see what this performance was standing for, mm. what stood for, for, for me at least, or mm. for most of us, you know, feeling empowered. And so the next five years, staying true to that purpose work, I've always loved being a mentor or being involved in, in dancers' lives and helping build performers. So taking it to the next stage and going to build a Kimberly Wyatt Dance Academy. Can you get your name back now? I have my name. I have my name. That blows my mind. You yeah. didn't have your name. I didn't have my name. I just signed a big contract to get my name back. Saying I would never speak badly about the label. And I don't think I've spoken badly about the label. I've given instances, but mm. it's, in, it's to help people feel good about themselves and mm. be able to have a mind frame to go up against what is sort of normal in a lot of business worlds of... Mm -hmm. you, of having to stand up for yourself. Mm. So Kimberly White Dance Academy, I'm gonna launch a YouTube because a big thing for me is making dance accessible to anybody. So I'm breaking down all the different styles of dance from tap, jazz, acro, ballet, street dance, and just giving you the absolute step-by-step, -step, whether it's a step ball change, a kick ball change, a demi-plie, a releve, breaking it down so I can make dance accessible to everybody really. Mm. Hopefully I can push that out to schools with the Youth Sport Trust and just find ways to continue to inspire people to don't stop dancing. Like all, the only believer you really need in your life is you and go out there and figure out what makes your heart sing. Mm. I think that's ultimately what's most important to mm. our wellness really. Mm. And how do you keep that in check? Like how do you keep kind of your mental health in check? Cause you've gone through a lot. Yeah. You have gone through a lot and although Resilience plays a big part, you're human. Yeah. And I think sometimes we can all just say, oh, it's fine, I'm strong, I can get through it. But every time it kind of niggles away a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. Yeah. And so how do you kind of check back in with your own purpose and keep yourself in check? An awareness of my own mind and body mm. that I can see the warning signs. 
time in nature is a big one for me. Going mm -hmm. on jogs, allowing all the dirt to settle. Um, writing in my journal, it's a constant one. Essential oils is a really big one. Hot baths, bubble baths, lovely long talks with friends. It's like you, you got to know what fills your cup back up with the mm. good stuff. Mm. And I think I've lived enough life to be experienced enough to know what I can do to fill that cup back up. But also know that when it just gets too much and you need a big old cry and you just, you'd be like, I'm so sick of being resilient and I'm sick mm. of this like crazy journey and the constant challenges. I think um, you have to allow that moment for yourself. Mm. And for me, I, I love being challenged at every step in life, mm. you know, whether it was rowing the coast of Britain for an ITV show or learning to, to ice skate. I about that. Like, <laughs> these challenges remind me of the resilience it takes to be a part of a team, to push through those boundaries when you think you can't go any further and mm. you just keep going. Like, mm. I think those are really good lessons to stay in tune with. Mm. And had I not done a triathlon or, or done certain things, I probably would have lost connect with that. Mm. Would you have done anything differently looking back now? I know that's always a big question like in hindsight, but you sacrificed so much. Is there anything you would have done differently? No, actually. I knew in order to live my dream, I was gonna have to make ultimate sacrifices. I knew what I was doing. Mm. I felt okay with it at the time. Mm. If I was to go back to my 21 year old self, I probably would have done the same thing. I was able to be a trailblazer in the music industry of waving a flag for dance and how much dance is brought to so much of the industry. But dancers are at the bottom of the totem pole when mm. it comes to all the different um, jobs you can have as an, as an entertainer. So to be recognized as a dancer and a pop star at the same time, I felt like I was doing a lot for my industry. Gosh, dancers are asked to work for free all the time, even for like back in the day, Justin Bieber uh, music videos and stuff. Like dancers' rights has been taken advantage of for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It's just starting to get a little bit better, long way to go. But I, I knew that this was a, an opportunity that so many people would die to have mm. and to be able to go out there and be a star in my own right. You know, I, in my mind, I was never a backing dancer. I was a, a, a role in that group that brought a lot mm. to the six or five of us, whichever it was. Mm. And I was always really proud of that. <laughs> how it was worded around the world and how people perceive that, you know, I have no control over that. And I think I'm often looked at as less than because I'm not the lead singer or because I didn't sing loads of verses or whatever, but I knew what my role was and I was always, I'm still am really quite fine with it. But it's like you're accepting that. I didn't think that was your role. Yeah. You're basically talking like that is your role, but I didn't think that was your role. That's just what you've perceived from the outside. Do you think so? Mm. Yeah, Massively. maybe. Yeah. Look how hard you worked. I know. Look I at did the blood, sweat, really and tears. You yeah. weren't just this asset in the background. Like people know you. Yes. People know your name. I agree. You two, uh, I mean, come on, women championing women. Yes. Let's not beat you, you in this like black sheep movement. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Winning. <laughs> Just because I yeah. can hear and I feel there's a massive influx of what you're telling me is what you've heard. Yeah, sure. As opposed to actually what I am hearing is how freaking hard you worked. Yeah. How much you really showed up every day. How much you worked as, you know, the Michael Jackson leg over the head. Yeah. You have these yeah. amazing moments. Totally. But that's not how you're. But the business is yourself. definitely not led in that way. Mm. You know, contractually, the way that you're treated, the things that you're told, 
you know, they want to keep you in a certain place. And I think that comes because of my first love, my first talent is dance. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where they, the business, the entertainment world at this point places that sort of talent. But I've done a lot of work, as you know, judging on Got to Dance for five series, then brought, you know, I had a management company for a while because I wanted to bring opportunity to dancers and find ways. If there's festivals, why not between setting one artist to the next? Why don't we have dance to go out there and like entertain people? Like mm. dance needs opportunity. Mm. So if anything, I, I use that feeling that I, I do hope is me sort of a, an internal thing rather than an external. I use that to fuel me to help others. Mm. I think that's really important. I think we all have that part of us that never feels quite enough. Yeah. And I think, you know, even in the modeling industry, you for sure never knew if you were enough. Totally. You know, were you just that asset that was a clothing horse? Constantly feeling replaceable, I'm sure. Always replaceable. Yeah. Always yeah. replaceable. And always needing to change your look to keep up with the trends. Yes. And it's that never-ending feeling good enough feeling, which I can really resonate when you're talking. Mm -hmm. Am I going to wake up tomorrow and it's all gone? Yeah. Because that's terrifying. It's such an anxious space to live in. It is. But like you're still here I'm and you're still, still fighting. Yes, yeah. And I think that's kind of, you know, we keep referencing resilience because I think it's such an important part of your journey yeah. that many people might not see. And I think when you can see a certain person in the public eye, you don't really understand how much they've gone through because, yeah. you know, I've never really fully heard your, your full story till now. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so inspiring that you're such a fighter. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's kind of what I'm get, getting from sure. this whole conversation is... I didn't is, choose is to the, be a fighter. The fighter a life fighter. chose me, I'll tell you. <laughs> Do you think there's a part of it that you're scared to go back to losing it all from because you grew up in a working class family? Do you think there's part of that fear inside of you that if I don't keep fighting, yeah. I'm going to end up back to where I was? Well, because of the stuff that I experienced as a kid, I knew once I'd made the choice to move to L.A., there was no going back. Mm. There was no safety net ever. Mm. Even if, when I moved into my first place, I was a roommate at some chick's house. It was pretty devastating. But as I was gathering the last bit of my stuff, I went back to the car. It had been broken into. The bit of money that I had saved from doing cruise ships in cash was stolen. My social security card, birth certificate, drivers, like everything was stolen. Credit cards, everything. Why I left it in the car, I don't know. But I think I was just trying to get all my stuff in all by myself. So I was just in this place of like having to be a warrior, having to figure it out. And I've always been in that space. Mm. Yeah. And know that you will get through it. Yeah. Trust that you would just focus on the solutions rather than the problems. Mm. So after the dancing on ice, now you're obviously in recovery. And I feel like we're kind of coming back to the full part of the beginning of the interview of like where we are right now. What did you learn? Like what did you learn from that? Because I can imagine that being a very different experience to being in the dolls because it's live TV every of well, every Sunday and also you're towards a British audience which yeah before you were globally mm -hmm. what did you learn from Dancing on Ice what did you take from it I mean it was the most amazing experience I learned so much and it was incredible to learn a sport that I have idolized my entire life but as far as the perception of a woman on that show it made me realize that as females we have a lot of work to do not just for female rights, but the way we perceive each other. If we go back, we were born to compete for a man. 
And I think that's ingrained almost in our DNA. Mm. And I feel like it is hard for women to support women. I feel like I've learned that there is some work to do. And as much as I can say it, and I hope it lands, and I hope that people look at other women with a bit more like, oh, go on, you can do this. Mm. I think showing uh, examples of it is more important. Finding ways to unite women truly and show what that looks like and explore that and make that to be okay. Mm women have it hard enough like we we kind of need each other in this mm. crazy journey we, we can only sort of understand our ourselves through one another mm. and conversations we have and it's okay for a woman to go out on stage and like or, or in business or wherever and own it and we should be feel free enough to support that mm. and so I hope that I'm able to create examples of of women feeling united I wish pussycat dolls could be that moment of Showing women feeling united, I, I don't know. But if not there, I just feel like it's important that mm. at this point in the world, we need to help society feel better about their women. Mm. I mean, I completely, I utterly and completely agree. Yeah. Because as you said, we face it hard enough as it is. And then when we're against each other, we're adding another layer on. And I just think we need to break down that layer. But sadly, I mean, I've always felt very similar with the, the clashing of women. And I think even men will, will also openly say, men do support one another. But yeah. with women, we kind of just seem to knock one another down. And I, I can't quite get my head around to as why. Maybe because we feel there's a tougher slog. It is though, isn't there. it? Like, you know, most businesses are run by men. Yeah. And the amount of space that they'll have for a woman is very limited. So the competitive feeling that that brings in women is, is immediate. Mm. And I think that comes from the moment you step into a workplace, almost everywhere, almost mm. everywhere. Mm. And I think some great things are starting to happen. I think there's a bit more awareness. I mm. think women are welcomed in a bit more, but I think we should take it upon ourselves to realize sort of the makeup of our DNA of competing for a man, competing for a job, competing for limited spaces, and just like put it to one side and like make real change. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And so lastly, on that note then, yes. my final question I ask all my guests is what does live well, be well mean to you? For me, after everything we've talked about, it's those little rituals and habits that make you feel good. Mm. And being disciplined in your own life, having enough respect for yourself that you stay true to those little habits. For me, it's getting up in the morning and doing my dance flow session while the kids are still sleeping so that I feel good in, in my mind, body, and soul enough to meet them with a smile and make them a gorgeous breakfast and send them off to school in as good of a mood as I can possibly be. Mm. And continue to make choices, um, you know, live well, be well, like to continue to make choices that stay true to your purpose work, mm. stay true to who you are. When I teach, I say, be you, be fearless, be authentic. Be, nobody is, 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 moves like you, nobody thinks like you, so celebrate who you are and the body that you're in. Mm. Be fearless, that doesn't mean you're void of fear, it means you're not scared of pushing through fear to mm. see what's on the other side. Mm. And be authentic enough to have done enough work to know who you are and feel okay with that. Mm. Like, not even okay, but like proud of it. Mm. Be proud of the, the, the reflection you see in the mirror, mm. which I can say has not always been the case for me. But I'm in a place where I'm, I'm proud of being able to, having, having touched so many lives as a teacher, as a dancer, as a performer. Like, I, I feel like I've made good choices enough to feel good about the life that I'm living. Mm. Be courageous. 
Be courageous. You are. You are courageous. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Just say no. Please. <laughs> Thank you for coming on to Live Well Be Well. I know that is going to inspire so many people listening. So what I want to lastly leave with is if anyone wants to come and join this fantastic dance academy that you're creating, one, where they can they find it, and two, when is it open? And three, can I sign up? <laughs> I mean, I love to dance. No flexibility. Don't you worry. It's just fine. <laughs> be you, be fearless, be authentic. No, it's all launching in September of this year. So YouTube will be launching next month or this month, June. And um, yeah, the Academy will be launching in September and hopefully we'll get a real feel for the Surrey area of who wants to sort of be involved. And uh, by January, really amp things up and offer an incredible experience to not just be an amazing dancer, but build the building blocks of being a great person through mm. the Kimberly Wyatt Dance Academy. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> head to the show notes. <laughs> there was a little drop for you. <laughs> I will put that on in the show notes. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for Super having inspiring. me. Super inspiring. Thank and you. I can't wait to see the next journey. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realize. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. If you love this podcast, I would really urge you to support us on Patreon. Our Patreon community really do help keep this podcast going. And alongside being within the community, you can also get exclusive access to early release podcasts and specific Q&As with me on topics that you want to hear. Being a Patreon member of this podcast does really help keep the support going because it's not easy to deliver this every week without you guys. So thank you so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please go to patreon forward slash live well, be well, become a member and support this podcast. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.